Open up your Bibles to John chapter 11. We are concluding this chapter in our study uh, series through John's Gospel. And we'll take a, a break next week, but after that, you're looking at nothing but John for a while. Uh, we've charted it out, and we're looking to be done with our series sometime around October, November, uh, just in time for Advent. And what we've seen so far in this gospel is we've seen John, our author, has recorded certain things that Jesus did that revealed that Jesus was the Son of God. And after each of those signs, we've seen how people responded to those signs. And that was kind of one of those things when we did the introduction to this, I I mentioned to you, you look for that. Because every time Jesus does something, John also records how people reacted to that. Some of the signs we've, uh, the responses that we've seen so far, we've seen some who have believed in Christ as the Son of God. Recall John 4, the woman at the well. Jesus intentionally goes through Samaria, goes to this well in the middle of the day to have this divine appointment with the lady who goes there to avoid everybody else. And in that conversation, he reveals to her who he is, and he reveals that he knows everything about her, things in particular that she doesn't like, things that she tries to keep from people. And the result of that is this lady goes back to town and this thing, sorry. Natalie didn't dress me this morning. Uh, She goes back to town and she shares with the men of the town and says, hey, I think this guy might be the Messiah. You should come see him. Let me tell you why I think that. He has revealed everything about me. And when you look at John chapter 4, verse 39 through 42, you see that result, that response to this sign that Jesus did. John chapter 4, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We saw belief. If you go forward in that same chapter, in John chapter 4, Jesus heals the official son, right? The official comes to him and he says, Hey, my my son is sick. He needs you to go and heal him. And Jesus says, no, I don't need to go. You go back home. He will live. So the official goes home, and as he's going home, they have some people from his house run out to him. He's like, they're telling him, good news. He's okay. And he asks, around what time did this happen? And they tell him. And in John chapter 4, verse 53 The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all of his household. Some people have responded with belief. I don't need to mention it, but I will. 
we've also seen hostility towards Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 18. You know, Jesus basically heals a man on the Sabbath and he gets attacked for doing so. And he says that my father is working until now and I am working. And then in 5.18, he sa- it says this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And Jesus faced that throughout his life. He also faced hostility. And then we have this other group of people where they believed but they lacked true saving belief. And you'll recall some of those as, as if you rec- go back to John chapter 2. You remember Jesus was revealing who he was. He was doing signs. And in verse 23 of John 2, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And then if you would keep going, right, we, we, talk, we told you, you know, just because it's the end of chapter 2 and you start chapter 3 that they're not disconnected, John chapter 3 records that conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus is an example of this type of person who believed in what Jesus was doing, but had not seen his full glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. So you have this conversation where Nicodemus comes to Jesus, a Pharisee, at night. And he doesn't even have to tell Jesus what's on his heart. Jesus says, if you want to see the kingdom, you must be born again. Completely frustrating to a Pharisee. Because his whole life, he is supposed to, he's been doing the law, following the law. And what Jesus told him was, this is out of your control. If you want to see the kingdom, you must be born again. Well, what do we contribute to our own birth? Nothing. We come into this world, we did not contribute to that. And that was frustrating to Nicodemus. What was pointed out to him there is, look, you're believing in me as a good what? He says, you are a teacher sent from God. He had not seen the full glory of Jesus Christ. He lacked true saving faith. You see it again in John chapter 8. Jesus reveals himself as the light of the world. And he says in John chapter 8, verse 28 through 30, Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Verse 30. And he, as He was saying these things, many believed in Him. And then if you were to keep reading, Jesus, in verse 31, addresses the Jews who had believed in Him. And he tells them, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they defend their freedom, remember? And where did they place their source of freedom in? Was it in Jesus Christ because they believed in him? No. It was in their heritage, in their morality, and in their religion. And these same people that are described in verse 30 as believing in him at the very end will pick up stones to kill Jesus. 
They didn't have true saving faith. They believed in the things that he was doing, but they weren't believers. They did not trust him for salvation. They still trusted in their system of religion. Last week we saw another sign. And it was an incredible one. He raised Lazarus from the dead. A man who had been dead for four days. And I went into all the gross details of what happens to your body as, you, as you're dead over the course of those three days. And Jesus raised him from the dead. And so this week what we're going to do is we're going to look at the responses to that undeniable evidence. No one has ever done this. It's absolutely clear that when Jesus says he's the Son of God, that's who he is. He's put that on display. And we'll see three different responses again. And it would be good for us to ask ourselves the same question that the Pharisees asked themselves in verse 47 of our text. What are we to do? What are we to do with this man? We'll see three types of responses. We'll see responses from the believers, from the hostile, and from the indifferent. First, let's look at the believers. John chapter 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Now, this is the desired response, right? This is what we would want to see as the church. We would want to see people see Jesus in all of his glory and believe. That's why John wrote this gospel. I am writing these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have eternal life. But how do we know this is true saving belief? Because as I've pointed out, we've already seen some people who believed but did not really believe. Well, let me give you some internal evidence. First of all, nothing is mentioned otherwise. I mean, if you go back to John chapter 2, it says many people believed, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. And then you have that conversation with Nicodemus where Nicodemus reveals, I'm believing you as a good teacher sent from God, but he falls short of seeing him as the son of God. Then you go to John chapter 8, right? John chapter 8, many people were believing in him as he was saying those things, but then when Jesus presses in a little deeper, he finds out that they're not really trusting in him for salvation, And in fact, they pick up stones to kill him. Well, you don't see that with this group. So there's no internal evidence that would make us think otherwise. Secondly, they're used in contrast to the hostile Pharisees. You see these people, and then what happens is many believed, and then in verse 46, but some of them, and then you see the contrast there. Third, the response of the Pharisees implies that they considered them as true followers. Because when the Pharisees get together with the council, with the Sanhedrin, they're telling them, hey, we've got a problem. These people are following Jesus, and they will go on to say, and if we allow him to continue doing what he's doing, everyone will believe in him. 
So it seems like these are true believers. They have seen the fullness of God. The fullness of the glory found in Jesus Christ as he raised a man from the dead after being dead for four days. They saw the undeniable evidence and said, that's him. That's the son of God. So the sign revealed the glory and having seen it, they believed and notice the content of their belief. What does it say? They believed in him. He is the content of their belief, not in what he did, but they believed in him as the Christ, as the son of God. They believed in Jesus as the resurrection and the life. They believed that he was the light of the world that pierced through the darkness. They believed that he was the one that brought hope to the hopeless, that brought joy to the mourning, and brought restoration to the broken. Why do they believe those things? Because they just saw it. They saw this man resurrect someone from the dead. They saw this man, in the middle of their darkness, bring light. In the middle of their hopelessness, As they're mourning over the death of Lazarus, Jesus enters in, and he brings hope, and he brings joy. This is such a great reminder to those of us who believe. This morning, our worship team, when we were praying, this is what we prayed for, for you as a believer, that you would be reminded of the glory of Jesus Christ, what we have in him. It's those things, resurrection, life, hope into our hopelessness, joy into our mourning, restoration in our brokenness. And I thought it would be really good for us. Let's, let's reflect on what we've seen only in John's gospel so far. This is not an exhaustive list. But what have we seen in John's gospel? For those of us who believe, what have we received in Christ? I'm going to go through these quickly. When I put them in yesterday for Caitlin to upload, she freaked out because there was a lot of them. But I'm going through John's gospel and all that we've seen so far. I want to remind you what we have received in Christ. John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We are part of his family. He has adopted us into his family. He is our father who we can go to in a time of need. And not just a father, he is the perfect father who will never leave us, who will never lead us astray. These are the things we talked about whenever we studied this. John chapter 1 verse 16, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Some of you who were here for that, you know where I'm going with this. What does grace upon grace mean? That it means it's unending, never ceasing grace. Despite whatever failing we have, we find grace in Christ and Christ alone. And it says grace upon grace. And what that's saying is unending. So it's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. John 1, 29, the next day, talking about John the Baptist here, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Sin is removed. 
Christ has removed sin. He has removed its effects. That brokenness, you remember Jesus wept as he sees the brokenness, the effect of sin when people are mourning over Lazarus' death because that's what sin leads to. He removes that. He also removes the power of sin. For those of us who find our, we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, sin has no power over us anymore. We are not held in bondage any longer. Sometimes, as, as foolish children that we are, we enter back into that, but we don't have to. The power has been removed. And the effect, that wrath of God, the just wrath of God that's deserving that we deserve was poured out on Christ on the cross. He's removed that from us, and instead he has imputed or placed upon us righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We've been given eternal life. John chapter 6 Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In Christ, we find complete satisfaction. We will not want anything else. Everything we want and need is found in him, and he provides it to us. He does not withhold it. In John 6, 37 through 40, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Not only have we been given eternal life, but we've been given eternal security. He will raise us up on the last day. He will not lose anything that the Father has given him. We are secure. John chapter 8, verses 10 through 11. The woman who was caught in adultery, Jesus stood up to her and said, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. We sang that this morning. We've been given freedom from condemnation. Deserving, but he's been gracious to us. And in Christ, we find no condemnation. John 8, 12, and again, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's given us the freedom from darkness. John 10, 10, when we talk about the good shepherd, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they, have a, they may have life and have it Abundantly, So he's not just given, he's given us overwhelming, abundant life. John 10, 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. What do we find in Christ? We have unity. Unity in Christ. One flock with one shepherd. Lastly, John 11 Verse 25 through 26. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong one. 
Ring 10. John chapter 11, verse 25 through 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In Christ, we have victory over death. All of this is found in the content of our trusting belief, Jesus Christ. So what are we to do with this man? That's the question we're going to see in verse 47. Some of us find ourselves in, th- in this category, right? We're the ones who have believed, who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. These are the things that we've been given in Christ. Now, we don't come to Christ for these things. We come to Christ because He is the ultimate, the greatest treasure. But we receive these things. So what are we to do with this? Is this not a Christ worthy of our praise? Is this not a Christ worthy of our entire lives? That everything we do, we would be pointing people to Him so that they too would receive this blessing of Him? Now, all of these are very encouraging, right? This is good stuff. I have freedom, eternal life. I've been delivered from condemnation. That's all good stuff. But there is something that we should also prepare for because there is something else that comes with following Jesus. We must also prepare for those who are hostile to the gospel. We, we should prepare for persecution as well. We should expect to be persecuted as he was persecuted. I'll use that to enter into that next response, the hostile, so that we can see what Jesus faced. In John chapter 11, I'll read 46 through 48. After those who have believed, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In the face of undeniable evidence, what do we see here? No one denies the fact that Jesus just raised him from the dead. You don't see that. What do they say? This man is performing many signs. See, their concern is shown in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. I, I just, that, that stood out to me when I was studying this. They feel like the evidence is so clear that whoever sees it will believe in him. If we let him continue, everyone's going to believe in him. Why is that a problem to them? This is why. What we're going to see is the Passover is coming. And when the Passover comes, you've got million plus entering into Jerusalem. 
Every Jewish man is coming in town. And here is this Jesus guy performing all of these signs, raising people from the dead. That's going to be a highly influential person when all these people come in. And they're worried about chaos. They're worried about all of a sudden these people rebelling against the the political figures that they've been given in the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they they have been in opposition to Jesus this whole time. And if that happens, Rome's coming in because understand, they are under Roman oppression right now. And as long as everything's peaceful and good, Rome's okay with it. But if there were to be chaos, they're going to come in and they're going to take everything back. That's the concern of the Pharisees. What are we to do? If we let this man continue, everyone's going to believe in him. And then Rome will come in and they will take back that nation. They will take back this land. Then we're introduced to Caiaphas. And we'll get to know Caiaphas a little bit better later on. But Caiaphas was the high priest. And he speaks up in verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas, understand the position of the high priest. When, with Rome being the true ruler of Israel, the high priest... Caiaphas being a Sadducee, which means he's, he's an arist- aristocrat. He was wealthy, but he's a very influential political figure, although it's masked as religion. His primary responsibility is to be that intermediary between Rome and the people of Israel. And you can imagine what that would be like. You can imagine there'd be a lot of compromise that would have to be done. Because you've got to please the rulers you got to hold everybody else in check so that they're okay. These were very corrupt people. Something you should know about Caiaphas is he is the longest standing high priest that served under Rome. 18 years. There's a reason that one would be in that position that long. He's going to do whatever Rome says. And he's going to do whatever it takes so that Rome will not interfere, so that the Roman rulers will not be unhappy. So what does he say to do with Jesus? He says it is better for the nation that one man die than the whole nation die because of that one man. Unknowingly, he just declared gospel truth. He didn't know what he was saying. Of course, we understand what Caiaphas was saying was, hey, look, it's better that we kill this man that might cause this uprising rather than him cause that uprising and then the whole nation get wiped out. But as John will go on to explain, he did not say this of his own accord. God used him to declare gospel truth and say one man 
will die for the whole nation. And not for the nation only, but for all the children of God. It is better for us in this room that Jesus Christ went to the cross to die on our behalf because he is the only one who could completely satisfy the judgment that we deserved. Fully God and fully man. Man, temporal, deserving of eternal punishment. Our death would never satisfy that penalty. But the death of Christ, the Son of God, would Then we see in verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. You know what that means? When we see that trial come up later on, where they're, where they're putting Jesus on trial to determine whether or not he's innocent or guilty, it's a mockery. These men will not stop at anything to see their plan fulfilled. And what happens, though, is effectually, they're accomplishing the plan of God. What they meant for evil... God meant for good. What are the implications for us? First of all, it is so evident here. No amount of evidence can on its own convince someone to believe in Jesus Christ. Man is naturally opposed to him. No one seeks after God. No, not one. And even when faced with the most compelling evidence possible, Jesus raising a man that had been dead for four days. They see the evidence, and they decide they need to kill him instead. As we saw in John 3, God must do a work first. That's what he told Nicodemus. You must be born again, and that's not something you can do. He talks about the, the, the wind, right? He says, don't get frustrated, Nicodemus. The wind comes and goes as it wants, and no one knows where it comes from, and no one knows where it's going. It's not within man's control. God must enter in. He must do something first. So what does that mean for us? For those of us who are believers, how much more essential is prayer now? for those of us that we desire to come and put their faith in Jesus Christ. We are praying to the one who must do that work. We are praying to the one who must give that new life so that they can see the evidence and accept it and believe in Jesus Christ. That's why prayer is important. We're praying to the one who has the authority and who has the power. Not only that, but as we pray and as we align our hearts with God, our faith is built up. We are starting to trust in Him because this is the thing. He saved us. He's given us new life. Why would we feel discouraged when we know He can do that for our, 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 our parent or our, our sister or our brother or our close friend or our coworker? So we pray earnestly. And as we pray, we begin to trust. 
And this is the other thing, and this is one that when I was thinking about the implications for this, it's one of the things I've been praying through. We must be patient. We must display patience rather than frustration. We have a tendency to do that. I know I do. When people don't respond with belief. When we pray and we love and we're gracious and we're forgiving and we're merciful and we're displaying the glory of God, we're putting that on so that people would see Him and that they would see that Jesus is the hope that they need and they don't respond with belief. We should not be responding with frustration. Rather, let's display patience. And let's say, you know what, God? I know you're the one that has to work. And I know that you are going to do a work. I just want to see it. I want to be a part of it. And so I'm praying to you because in my prayer, I'm joining alongside what you are doing. And I'm going to ask that you let me see it in this life or the next. That one for me was very real this week. Because there is something that wells up within me that's it's frustration. Why don't they see it? Why don't they believe? Why do they keep turning to all of these other things when I'm telling them and I'm showing them in word and in deed that Jesus Christ is their only hope? Let's be patient. Let's see what God's going to do. Second implication of that is realize that we must bear persecution for our faith in a way that is honorable to Christ. Later on in John's Gospel, we'll see Jesus give this promise. John 15, 18 through 20, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Then again, same conversation in John 16. Verses 1 through 4, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you, note that, when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Persecution is a promise to the church. If you are following Jesus, realize that just as he was persecuted, so will we. We should bear that in an honorable way. And know that just after he makes that promise to his disciples, John chapter 16, verse 20, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament 
but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. That there is a joy that comes after that. And so when we talk about faith in Christ, faith being the assurance of things hoped for, our hope would be in that greater joy despite whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, despite the persecution we may face, we walk faithfully towards that end in a way that's honorable to Christ. There's a third implication, and this would be for anybody who would be hostile to the gospel just as the Pharisees were. He gave it in John chapter 8. Verse 23 through 24, he said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. That's a promise. For any who does not believe in Jesus Christ, Just as Jesus brings eternal life to those who believe, those who do not believe will experience eternal death. Because He's just. God is a just God. Let's look at the third response in our our text in John 11. We've seen believers. We've seen the hostile. Let's look at the indifferent. Verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Just a reminder what I told you a couple weeks ago when we, when we were looking at Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Chapter 11 is a transition, right? Jesus is transitioning from his public ministry to now focusing on his disciples. So you see that here, right? The Jews are now intent on putting him to death, Jesus withdraws, and he's with his disciples. Now he's going to focus all of his energy into training up his disciples in preparation for his departure. And we'll see that as we progress through John's gospel. In verse 55 through 57. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus And saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. This is so distant. These are people who are disengaged. These are people who were following the religious act of purifying themselves and saying, do you think he'll show up? you think he'll come? Surely he won't miss the whole thing. These are people looking for the attraction. They're the ones just paying attention to see what happens. They're indifferent to Jesus Christ. They're going to go about their lives as they always have, but then, oh, I wonder... I wonder what's going to happen. Make no mistake, they are not on neutral ground. 
We saw the believers. We saw the hostile. The indifferent aren't in between. Jesus made that clear in Matthew 12, 30. When he said, if if you're not with me, you're against me. There's no middle ground there. If you're not with me, then you're against me. You're my enemy. And as we will see in a few weeks, you know, this is Palm Sunday. This week, this is Palm Sunday. And what's going to happen in a few weeks when we get there in the triumphal entry in John chapter 12 is these indifferent people are going to line the streets and they're going to wave the palm branches and they're going to cry out, Hosanna! Hosanna! Which means, save us now. Looking to him for deliverance from the political reign. Be our king. Defeat Rome. And when he says, that's not how we're going to do things, that's the same people who will yell, crucify him. Crucify him. These are indifferent people. They are enemies of God. Anyone who finds themselves in this place If you're in this room, I hope you realize which side you're on. You're not siding with Christ, and you're not safe. You're not neutral. The implication of that is that there's no, this is not a wait and see kind of a thing. That's what these people were doing. Let's just wait out and see what happens. Let's continue to do what we're doing, but let's pay attention. Okay, something happens. For those of us today, the evidence is in. We have seen the fullness of the revelation of God. And it is absolutely clear that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He is the only hope, that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no one who finds salvation in any other way but through Him. The Pharisees asked themselves, what are we to do? And their decision was to ignore that evidence and put him to death. How will we answer that question? What are we going to do with this man who has the power to bring life from death? For those of us who have experienced that, who were once dead, but now are alive. What are we going to do with this man? I think we should continue on in obedience, basking in the glory of our Savior, praising Him with every breath that we take. Because that's what He's deserving of. And if you find yourself being hostile or indifferent, I would encourage you to consider the evidence. The evidence that's revealed in Scripture. And consider it as something that does not need to be explained away or destroyed, but as truth that can be trusted for eternal life.
for the removal of sin, to deliver you from bondage, for complete satisfaction that you're not going to find anywhere else. That no material thing, that no job, that no person could ever provide you with. He is always good. And so I would encourage you to believe in Him. Let's pray. Father, You are a glorious God. And on this Sunday, Father, as we reflect on the triumphal entry of Your Son in Jerusalem, and all of the humility that He did that with, riding on a donkey, seeking peace. Your Son, the Creator of all things, humbling Himself to redeem His creation. Father, for those of us who have believed in that and trusted in Your Son, Father, would You give us a renewal of the feeling that we have toward Him as, as we've received freedom, as we've received forgiveness, as we've been given new life. We are eternally secure. Father, when we fail, we find nothing but grace upon grace upon grace. Father, so many times we, we know these things with our, with our heads. Would you penetrate our hearts with that truth? Father, I pray that you would use your church to bring glory to you, to make yourself known. Father, we, we pray for those who, who are hostile or indifferent that we would not get frustrated with them for not seeing your glory. But Father, we pray that we would be faithful and obedient and to continue to display that glory. And we trust that you will do the work, that you will open the eyes of the blind, that you are the one who will give them the ability to hear and that through hearing, faith would come. Father, we pray that we would be faithful to continue to preach that good news in word and in deed. And let us be patient to see what you do. Father, if there's anyone here who has not trusted in your son, Jesus, Father, I pray that you would open their eyes to see the evidence, to see it as truth, undeniable truth, something that they don't need to explain away, 
something that they don't need to destroy. Father, we pray that you would bring faith, that you would bring belief. Father, as we enter into this time of worship, as a reflection of what we've seen in Scripture, Father, I pray that we would praise your Son who brings light into our darkness, who has brought hope into our hopelessness, who has entered into our mess and our brokenness and has restored us. I pray that we would respond with praise, overwhelming from hearts that have been transformed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.